0: Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan, and the producer of our dope theme music. And today, on this July the 5th, first day after a long weekend, we're somehow absent Grace Weinstein, I don't know what happened to Grace Weinstein, she's MIA, which is one of the things about kids these days, all you listeners out there, you let them go free for three days for a long weekend, and they just sometimes don't come back. Hopefully, that won't be a permanent thing, but sitting in for the really irreplaceable Grace Weinstein, but for today, replaceable. we've got Megan Burney and Marshall Eisen. I mean, when you think about the crack team, the hot molten core of the Hell and High Water team, these two are hot and molten to the nth degree. It's like a volcano ready to erupt when you have Megan and Marshall around. Guys, I I ask you, how was your long weekend? Everybody have fun over the course of the
1: Independence Day weekend? I had a lovely long weekend. I'm not allowed to tell you exactly what I did, but it was fun.
0: Really undisclosed location. <laughs> Megan Marshall has a side gig with the CIA, so she's she, yeah. just that's that's what that's all about. You didn't do any skullduggery or spying over this weekend, did I you? I didn't,
2: but I Good. just know we don't ask Marshall many questions about what he does on his off time.
0: No, oh, I know. It's a, it's a danger zone. It's like all highly classified material. It might keep you well, alive. listen. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in the spirit of you know the Fourth of July weekend is over, Independence Day is past, and yet here on the Tuesday afterwards, we have a little bit of a Independence. We're still caught up in the spirit of it, and so uh, in keeping with that, we have Jason Cander on the podcast. And, you know, Jason notably was a army veteran, was one of the credentials that he brought to politics. He did a tour of duty in Afghanistan back when Afghanistan was a very, very hot war. And he came on the podcast to talk about uh, a whole bunch of stuff, but most notably, this remarkable new book that he's just published called Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD, the tale of... One of the fastest rising, brightest shining young stars in the Democratic Party, a guy who went from being a state representative in Missouri to the Secretary of State in Missouri, the first millennial ever elected to statewide office in a red state, to a Senate candidate, and then poised to enter the presidential race. Someone who was encouraged to do that by no less than Barack Obama, who looked at Jason Kander in his 30s and said, You've got what I had, dude. You should go for it. And then all of a sudden, back in 2018, Jason Kander took himself entirely out of politics to deal with his mental health, specifically the PTSD that's referred to in the title of the book. And I, guys, I guess I ask you, as you sat there and listened to it, it's kind of a remarkable interview because it's so introspective and the book's so introspective. And, and I wondered what you guys just made of Jason as a human grappling with all the potential that he had and the decision that he had to make to walk away from it all, and leave what he calls in the book a smoldering crater in the ground where his career once was, you know, just a, a person of no moment in, in the national political conversation for the last four years. What did you guys think of that as he talked about what he had to go through to get there? Marshall, like, what was on your—as what was, you sat there and listened to it, what were you thinking?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's incredibly impressive that he was able to share in such detail what he went through, because I know that part of the disorder that he suffered from— You keep it private, you don't share, there's some shame involved. And he did that for 10 years. Almost nobody knew what he was going through, and it was incredibly intense what he was feeling and experiencing. So the fact that he could share it in all that detail, talk about his treatment and in the detail that he did, I think speaks a lot to where he's at now as a person. I mean, Megan, it's like for years he's suffering from this profound malady, undiagnosed, but quite
0: intense to the point where... In the end, when he's decided not to run for president, but to instead to run for the mayor's office in Kansas City, he just pulls himself out when he starts getting hit with suicidal ideation. I mean, this undiagnosed condition that went on for 10 years kind of wrecked his life for that period of time, but he didn't really know what it was and didn't really know how to deal with it. I mean, just that moment of all of a sudden kind of going, right, okay, stop. There's a, a drama to that and also a humanity to it that's really pretty compelling.
2: Definitely. I thought it was remarkable. The self-awareness specifically, being able to identify, you know, that something wasn't right. And I know it took a long time and it was 10 years of not knowing. And, you know, at times he thought maybe he was getting better or recovering or moving in a direction that really wasn't the direction he thought so at all. And just the self-awareness of it all really struck me because PTSD is a remarkably complex disorder. And to be able to identify how it changes you. I don't think many people are able to pull themselves out of it. To be able to identify the things that were affecting him was really remarkable to me.
0: So true. I totally agree with that. And I'll say, you know, on top of all of that, to go through that process, to go through therapy, to do all the things he did, and then to come out the other side, decide to write this book which is unsparingly kind of honest and candid about it. He has a lot of motivations, I think, in doing that. Some of them are are wholly personal, but he also, I think, wrote the book in the spirit of trying to help other people who are going through the same struggle. And I want to play a little sound from the interview, and then we'll get to the whole thing. But here's a, a part where he talks about why he decided to write this book. Let's take a listen to that. And this is more than anything, this is why I wrote the book, is that
3: trauma is an injury. If you go to treatment and you commit yourself to the treatment and you do the homework you can get better. All we see when it comes to PTSD is PTSD porn. It's voyeurism. It's people hurting themselves or hurting other people. We don't
0: see what is super common, which is people who go to treatment and then they go on with their lives. And, you know, that's what Jason Kander is trying to do right now. And he admits, he's like, I think I'm better. He's in a much better place in that battle than he was before, but he's still in the battle. And I guess there will be cynics out there who are like, well, this is Jason Kander's rehabilitation memoir, and now he's going to be running again for office. And of course, I ask him that, and he honestly says, well, maybe, you know, maybe I will, maybe I won't we talked about other stuff in the podcast, right? Because we recorded it last week right after Cassidy Hutchinson's blockbuster testimony before the 1-6 Committee. We talked a firm out about that and about Trump and Trumpism and about the continued struggles of the Democratic Party to get its shit together. And I wonder in toto whether you guys listening to him saw any of the kind of potential that Barack Obama saw before the PTSD took him out of public life, whether you looked at this guy and thought that quality that
1: made him... To a lot of people, someone who could be a leader of the Democratic Party and its next generation. Yeah, definitely. I think he's sort of the perfect candidate in a lot of ways. He's young. He's smart. He's incredibly articulate. He's got the military backgrounds. And he's pretty progressive thinker. So, uh, look, he said he's not going to run for a long time, so I think you have to take him at his word. But it seems like he'll be an impressive candidate if he ever decides to get back into politics. So it looks like uh, Jason Cander has a campaign manager and slash CIA <laughs> operative
0: and in, uh, in Marshall Eisen if, uh, if he decides to get back in politics. Megan, are you in the, riding the Cander caboose? or the... I
2: think I am. I'm, All on, right. I'm on board. As you said at the very beginning, just how human he is. That's what hit me and I think will touch a lot of people when you see it in someone and their ability to talk to you, not at you, he gives off a sense of belief. And I hope to see that in a leader in the Democratic Party.
0: You know, we'll see. Jason Cantor is going to be a leader in some capacity in his life, whether it's in the party or not. But I've always been a fan and, and the book has only made me like him all the more. It is inspiring in a lot of ways to see our leaders grappling with all the turmoil and challenges and strife and omens of doom that we deal with in our public life. But on this episode of the podcast, we get to see something a little different. We get to see a very human, but pretty exceptional guy grappling and so far successfully with his own personal form of hell and high water. The
4: president had gotten into the vehicle with Bobby. He thought that they were going up to the Capitol. And when Bobby had relayed to him, we're not. We don't have the assets to do it. It's not secure. We're going back to the West Wing. The president had very strong, very angry response to that. Um, Tony described him as being irate. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president take me up to the capitol now, to which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the west wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the west wing. We're not going to the capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Angle. And Mr. when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles.
0: Okay, so we're here with Jason Cander, and we're going to talk about a lot of things. Jason's good to see you. I haven't seen you in, in such a long time. I've been. Yeah, uh, same. Congratulations on the book. We're going to talk about it at length. Jason has a great new book out called Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD. The country, I believe, is suffering PTSD also. And mm-hmm. I don't I don't mean that like metaphorically. I mean, literally. No. Yeah. I'm with you. So here's the thing about that. We're recording this here the day after Cassidy Hutchinson went before the 1-6 committee. I'm going to play some sound throughout. We'll talk about the 1-6 committee and Trump and other things and, and that hearing. It's not the most significant thing we learned yesterday. That story, the one I just played. But I played it for a reason. I've been covering politics for over 30 years. And I'm a pretty decent student of history. I really don't believe, if that account is true, that I've heard anything crazier that a president of the United States has ever done than in his vehicle getting into a physical altercation with his Secret Service protective detail. I I mean, I don't know, man. I have a very high bar for being shocked by Trump at this point, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. I was stunned, stunned. And I'm curious what you thought when you heard tell that story. To me, what it illuminates
3: is less about him. I mean, yeah, look, it's shocking that a guy who is a complete physical coward was actually going to try and become physical with someone. (laughs) That part was shocking to me. But like, you know, I'm also past the point of dunking on Trump. Like, who cares? That was my first initial reaction. But after that, it was like, You know, I think more about the fact that the reason he was doing that is because in his mind, what I think became very clear from that testimony is that in his mind, he was going to lead an armed mob inside the Capitol, potentially hang his vice president if necessary in order to take power that he had not been elected to. And now it's not like we didn't kind of know that, but the reason that that is the part that I'm left with is because... I think what we keep missing as a country is we keep seeing all this as Trumpism. We keep thinking that what happened is in 2016, this guy Trump came along and he put some sort of spell over some percentage of the country. And then some people go farther and some people are like, no, he tapped into something that was there. But I think both of those things miss the point. What's actually happening is that in the world right now, in the world, not America, in the world, there is a two-party fight going on between authoritarianism and democracy. We're seeing it in Ukraine with Putin's attack on Ukraine. We're seeing it all over the world. We're seeing it play out throughout Europe in places like Turkey, you know, all over the place. Right. And right. there's a struggle. And so my point is Trump didn't come along and create this thing. Trump is just the guy who was there at the time. And it's not a matter of do you side with Trump or don't you side with Trump? Are you a Republican, but not a Trump Republican? No, there's only two directions right now and America. All of us have to decide, are we on the side of democracy or are we on the side of authoritarianism? Because right. you've got to pick a side
0: on planet earth right now. Right. Well, I haven't said this for a while. Are you on team democracy or are you on team authoritarian? Fascism, it's not the wrong word to use at this point. I look, I agree with all of that, but I'm a storyteller. And, and part of what mm-hmm. I find amazing about this is that, and I've written books about politics, and you know, the, some of the best reporters in the country have been chasing this story. Books have been written about 1 6 by some of, like, I mean, Bob Woodward, Robert Costa, Carolina, great people, right? No one had this story. And the Trump universe is gossipy. Everybody constantly talks about how crazy Trump is among Trump's aides. That's how they got through it, how they managed to rationalize it. They had their own little support group going. And so anything that happened that he did that was fucking nuts generally found its way into one of these books or into media reporting. We believed until this hearing that Trump, the most rational way of thinking about Trump was that, of course, he sent his mob up to Capitol Hill, Told them he would come with them and then went back to watch it on TV. That's Trump. That's the Trump we know. That's true. Cynical grifter, put them in harm's way. He goes back to the White House. Now we learn, not just on the basis of her testimony, but some of the call logs and Secret Service text messages and so on, that Trump really wanted to go to the Capitol. And beyond the craziness of, I will say, you know Navy SEALs, right? Secret Service agents are Navy SEALs on steroids. They can kill you with their eyelashes. Like You're not going to get a fight with your fucking protective tail. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. You had, to be, you had to be out of your mind to do that. But the fact that he apparently really wanted to go, and I don't know, you said lead an armed rebellion. I think what he thought he was going to do was go up there, sit in the car, and wait until they got in the building. And someone came out like Kevin McCarthy and said, sir, we've now overturned the election and you are now elected for a second term. But he really believed that was going to he- happen.
3: Yeah, I think he thought that he could ensure that it would happen,
0: that if he were there, that they would follow through with it. I think there are signs of borderline personality disorder here. Trump's done some nutty shit, but this is really beyond. The thing that was more, I thought, more devastating politically and legally, potentially, was this story that Liz Cheney and Hutchinson told sort of together, where they talk about weapons on the ellipse and what Trump thought about the fact that a lot of his followers showed up armed that day.
5: The Select Committee has learned that people who willingly entered the enclosed area for President Trump's speech were screened so they could attend the rally at the Ellipse. They had weapons and other items that were confiscated. Pepper spray, knives, brass knuckles, tasers, body armor, gas masks, batons, blunt weapons.
4: Something to the effect of take the effing mags away. They're not here to hurt me. Let them in, let my people in. They can march to the Capitol after the rally's over. They can march from they can march from the ellipse, take the effing mags away. Then they can march to the Capitol.
0: They're not going to hurt me, you know? That's all that matters. But also does suggest that they're going to hurt somebody. They're going to use those right. weapons for some reason. We've had a lot of indications that Trump knew that there was a lot more planning a forethought about this. But I just think if you're thinking about making a criminal referral or the DOJ thinking about trying to press a case against Trump, indicting him, I mean... He knew they were armed. He wanted them to stay armed and have their weapons when they got to the Capitol. To me, that's devastating. And it makes it very hard, I would have thought, for Merrick Garland to say, yeah, yeah, nothing to see here. Is that not right? Am I not like- I-, I It's
3: 100% right. I really hope that that's what it means for Merrick Garland, because here's the thing. Everybody is debating right now, the January 6th committee, in the context of, will it matter in the midterms? Right. And I got news for you. Probably not. Right. That's not a verdict on whether they're effective. It's not really a verdict on anything. It's a verdict on the fact that people feel like prices are high and their wages aren't high enough. You know, and, and people have lives going on. And so they're going to vote based on that. That's fine. It's always been that way. Right. But if, if the midterms and if an election at some point is not going to be the verdict on these actions, and we don't want to have a coup be successfully pulled off in the United States, you got to have some consequences. And that means some people got to go to prison. Now I'm just like, people have to go to prison for this, or this is going to happen again by people who are like, well, you can do
0: this and nothing happens. Well, there are two things I want to unpack in there, but I'll start with the first one. Some people got to go to prison. Yeah, I agree with that. Some people already have gone to prison. A bunch of the rioters have them, more will go. There's a serious debate among serious people about whether there's a reason why we don't generally prosecute presidents because of the, the, the cycle of retribution that it could lead to and the criminalization of politics that could be worse than it already is. And Merrick Garland is a cautious guy. I know a lot of people on both sides of that issue, although fewer now on the side that says you shouldn't indict Donald Trump. Your view is you're a lawyer in addition to an army veteran and a former office holder. I mean, on the basis of what you know about the law and your views about accountability, are you like, I've seen enough, Trump should be indicted? Yeah,
3: that's where I am. I didn't start at, you should prosecute a former president. I mean, that's not where I started. But at some point, yeah, it's great that people who were involved in the insurrection have gone to prison. But is it fair if we get to a point where we know who sent them, and we know that there was a conspiracy to send them, and we just send the people who
0: went and not the people who sent them? That's not how America works. That's not fair. Right. So the second question was the thing you said about the midterms. I just want to get your sense of it. Like you live in Kansas city, right? Mm -hmm, Yeah. Kansas, it's Missouri the show me state, correct? That's right. Basically now a red state used to not be, but now it's pretty much a red state. It's not even a purple state. It's red. And you're a well-known guy in Kansas city, right? One of the most famous other than Sly James, you're the most famous person in in Kansas city. Um, Uh, Patrick Mahomes says this both. Oh, Patrick Mahomes. (laughs) Yeah, whatever. They've been doing this for a month. A lot of us were skeptical that it would break through because of the polarization of the country. I'm putting aside just the midterms now. I'm putting that aside. Just the question of mm-hmm. this polarization of the country, fragmented media environment. It's not 1974 again. You know, it's hard. My sense is that it has broken through, and I'm curious. In Kansas City, are people talking about these hearings? Is it a subject at diners and dinner tables? Not that they're all watching, because we know they're not all watching. But it seems like one of the things they've done really well is construct it as a story and as a court case in some ways, even though it's not, and that the most outrageous things that they're focusing on seem to be breaking through in popular culture in a way that I think is kind of striking.
3: It's broken through a little, but I I don't feel like it's broken through in terms of moving how people are going to vote more than, say, the Dobbs decision. And that's because one of the things that is just unique about the last several years is that the Democratic Party has always, for years, have been trying to separate Republicans from Trump in order to get them to vote against Trump, but then at the same time, Republicans have, when convenient, worked to separate themselves from Trump as well. This, I think, breaks through, and I think it's probably at least somewhat harmful to Trump's chances if he's the nominee again, or even potentially to get the nomination, but... Do I think that it's going to affect necessarily to a great degree, whether people are willing to send a Republican or a Democrat to Congress based on which party they want to have the majority? I don't think it's going to have a major effect on that.
0: So this raises a question, therefore, about the Democratic Party. Your assumption right now is that Democrats are going to lose the House, right? Everybody in politics thinks that, or do you disagree? Uh, I think it's pretty likely, yeah. I think without some intervening event, yeah. Prevailing winds are really tough, inflation, et cetera, et cetera. All the stuff that you said were in the real lives of real people. So Democrats have some choices to make here. They've been struggling to figure out what to do about the 1-6 committee as a political matter. Should they make it front and center? Should they not talk about it? There are people who have strong points of view on both sides of that. And there is some point of view, you mentioned Dobbs, that given how tough their road is, Democrats that is, especially among House candidates, that they should just go all in on take Trump and fascism and the 1-6 committee, Dobbs and the court were being overturned, guns to some extent. And roll it all up into one thing and say, here's our big national message. We must stop Republican extremism. We have to make this about something bigger than inflation, bigger than anything else. Go as big as you can and not not just focus on 1-6, but on all that range of issues. Does that seem like an appealing strategy to you? Or one that could work in Missouri? (laughs) Look,
3: I generally believe in being on offense, not defense. And that's a strategy that puts you on offense and not on defense. And when you are the incumbent party it's pretty hard to find opportunities to go on offense. And so if you have one, as gifted to you, you know, gifted. I mean, because horrible things have happened, right? So like, I I don't mean to say- Dropped on your head, basically, rather than- Yeah, I mean, really bad things have happened. Shootings, the Dobbs decision, all this stuff, and insurrection. Well, like, we're the opposite of those bad things. Like, we don't want those bad things. We want
0: to stop those bad things. So we should probably tell people that. Speaking of Republican extremism, let's put on Mike Flynn- and his little tape they played of him having a little conversation with Liz Cheney.
5: Do you believe the violence on January 6th was justified morally? Take the fifth. you believe the violence on January 6th was justified legally? Fifth. General Flynn, do you believe in the peaceful transition of power in the United States of America?
4: fifth.
0: Former National Security Advisor to the White House, and one of the most decorated senior people in the military for a period of time, someone who was considered a leader of men. I um, mean, this,
3: this guy was head of the Defense Intelligence Agency.
0: Yes, yes, right? Intelligence is your thing when you were in the Army. And so, you yeah. know, I mean, Mike Flynn was taken seriously up to a point. I wouldn't even ask you what you think unless you have a theory about what happened to Mike Flynn, but I wonder what you think to hear someone who is that senior in the United States military declining to answer the question of whether he believes in a peaceful transfer of power by claiming the fifth, because again, the fifth amendment means because my words could incriminate me. I mean, I don't even, I don't even know where to start with that, but as a fellow veteran, what do you think about that? You know, my wife said to me
3: after January 6th, my wife came here at the age of eight as a refugee from the Soviet Union, actually from Ukraine. And she said, you know, we all operate under this assumption in America. We have for a long time. That while we disagree on stuff, that everybody agrees about democracy and that everybody loves the ideals behind the country. She's like, I don't know why everybody always assumes that. Not everybody wants democracy. And, you know, there are people who don't want democracy. And the other thing is, like, I don't want to get in too much trouble here because you always get in trouble when you compare people to Nazis, right?
0: So, uh, you can I, say fa- everyone you has can, told me not to do You can that. just say fascist if you want. People yeah, we'll people will fascist, get it. People fine. will get it although you just let the cat out of the bag anyway, but
3: yeah. Well, I look, here's what I'll say. I think that oftentimes we wonder things like I wonder what I would have done if I were there in right. Germany in yeah. the 30s, you yeah. know? Right. I'm Jewish. I don't wonder what I would have done. I mean, I guess I do because would I have been one of the people who was like, "This isn't real"? It won't, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yes, of course, of course. So, so yes, I do. But I mean, for everybody else, it's like, would you have gone along? Would you have hidden Jews? What have you have done? And I guess what I would say about this is that in every institution we have, in business, and the military, and whatever, there are people that go into a career field, they join an institution, they do whatever. That doesn't mean we know what they would have done in the '30s, and it doesn't yeah. mean that we know what they truly believe is important and what motivated them. Flynn is a guy who his actual motivations and what he's actually about has been revealed. And I guess what I would say is if he were my neighbor and it were the thirties, I don't think I'd
0: be like, can we hide in your basement? That guy is not on team democracy. You know, no. someone who can't say, yes, I'm in favor of a peaceful transfer of power. I just want to hit the Missouri thing one more time. You know, in general, I agree with the notion that when you're playing from a position of weakness, that. The only way to win is to elevate the conversation, to go somewhere bigger, go somewhere higher, make it about the things that aren't the things that are weighing you down. But I just wonder, here's where I'm going to really ask you to get in trouble. Is the Democratic Party of today capable of doing what I'm talking about? And I asked the question for this reason. When it came to the Dobbs decision, the party was given six weeks notice. It's never happened before in the history of the country where we knew more or less the very high likelihood that Roe is going to get overturned. It's one of the two most famous Supreme Court decisions in the history of the country. And it's this thing where it unites all Democrats, conservative Democrats, liberal Democrats, centrist Democrats, everyone's for Roe, right? It's not even a factional thing. And yet with advance warning, full knowledge, even like some dates on the calendar as when it might happen, when it happened, the organized institutional, I'm not talking about Democrats out in the country, not the grassroots, but the organized institutional Democratic Party from Joe Biden Kamala Harris down seemed utterly unprepared. There was no unified party message. There was a lot of humana, humana, humana. Again, at the top of the party. A, do you agree with that? That, that yeah. there was not an organized message. And, and B, why? And C, if that's true, isn't the Democratic Party fucked? Because if you can't figure out how to message on a row where sixty percent of the country agrees with you and there's no internecine drama about it, how are you going to ever like make the case against fascism? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with it to some extent. I
3: think that sometimes our lack of infrastructure in terms of not having our own real Fox News slash talk radio, that bullhorn infrastructure, which is something that needs to be fixed. I feel like that does sometimes get mistaken for a lack of tight messaging. That said, I don't think we had tight messaging on this. I don't think that they were ready. They should have been. But more than that, what gives me qualms about whether or not I'll just say the left, like the organized left, of which I would consider myself a part, is prepared to really make the case to the country is that we have a tendency anymore, it seems, at the organized level to swing and miss at the opportunities to really make this about people's lives. And the reason for that is... It gets misconstrued often as the left has a choice between whether they go to the middle or whether they go to the far left or whatever. And you're right. This is a perfect example where there's unified understanding of what our position is across the party. So you don't have that problem here. And yet we're still tripping over ourselves. And I think it's because we have kind of failed to, in a unified way, make the day-to-day argument. Now, not all the time. If you think back to like the 2020 election, I felt like the Biden campaign, when they talked about COVID, when they talked about guns it was done very well. Now, what's the difference there? You've got the unifying nature of a presidential campaign. And without that leadership structure, it's very hard. And so that's why I always talk about like, you got to put it in plain language. It's got to be like, this is going to affect your daughter. And I don't feel that we've been doing that
0: in a unified way. There are a lot of smart democratic strategists. There's a lot of smart Democrats in politics. I, I know a lot of them. It's not just the lack of infrastructure of not having a left-wing media alternative or, or counterweight to the right. The party doesn't somehow cohere around things like this. I swear to God, Jason, if I'd asked you after we read the draft decision and I said, hey, bang out a memo about what Democrats should say when this comes down and what they should do on messaging, on politics, and even on substance, you could have written it in four hours. Yeah, and sent it by email to every elected Democrat in the country, and 96% of them would have been like, okay, great, we have a message, let's go. Because they're Democrats, you would have probably had a few outliers where you had to spend a few days herding those cats. But you could have done that. I especially know you could have done it having read your book, because you're quite a good writer. But I just don't understand why no one's doing it. I mean, I, there's no visible sign that anybody did that job before Dobbs came down. I don't understand. What's missing? I don't know what's missing.
3: I guess part of it is... You don't have a fully politically oriented, campaign oriented White House, to be quite frank, which, look, I admire the fact that they're busy governing. That's good. Yeah. But at some point, we also have to figure out that if you don't get to keep
0: governing, it ain't going to matter. Better do it soon. By the time this podcast posts, it'll be July, which is not very far from November. We're going to take a really quick break here. We're going to come back and talk about Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD. Jason Cantor's incredibly moving and powerful and insightful new memoir. After these messages. We're back with Jason Kander, author of Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD. And Jason, again, congratulations. The book's fantastic. Thank you. It's one of those kind of daunting topics, right? People say, oh, yeah, Jason Kenner's got a book out of PTSD. I really want to read that. You know? I mean, it's like- you know, <laughs> Yeah, you know, I know. That's what I worry about. You know what I'm saying? PTSD. <laughs> it's being like, well, let's read a thing that's, that has to do with traumatic stress and disorders yeah. all rolled into one. PTSD. It also got, has jokes. It does have jokes. It's got some very good jokes, one of which I will cite in a moment. So there's two threads that run through the book, and they're the two threads that run through your life. We're going to take them in s- sort of chronological order because part of it's just biography here. One thread is your meteoric political career up until a moment when you finally decided to get to terms with your PTSD, and then it all kind of came crashing down by your own doing. And then I want to talk about how you dealt with the PTSD. There's places where these threads obviously come together, but I want to start just talking about politics. I want to play an ad that you ran when you campaigned against Roy Blunt in 2016 in the race for the Missouri United States Senate. This ad went viral. It was about background checks and guns. Let's play it, then we'll go back and talk about the whole political career of Jason Kander.
3: I'm Jason Kander, and Senator Blunt has been attacking me on guns. Well, in the Army, I learned how to use and respect my rifle. In Afghanistan, I'd volunteer to be an extra gun in a convoy of unarmored SUVs. And in the state legislature, I supported Second Amendment rights. I also believe in background checks so that terrorists can't get their hands on one of these. I approve this message because I'd like to see Senator Blunt do this.
0: I've seen this ad many times, but for anybody who doesn't know, what is it you're doing in that ad? I'm assembling a rifle while blindfolded. Yes, it's an incredible ad. Really clever, really great. You lost that race to Roy Blunt. We shall all be honest. It's Larry Blunt, I believe. One of the signs that Missouri was getting redder and redder. Talk to me about your interest in politics. You're still an absurdly young man, 41 years old right now born in Overland Park in Kansas, neighboring state to Missouri. Last time I checked, you were really early, according to the book, thinking you might want to do politics, at least in your teens. What was that about? So I grew up in the suburbs of Kansas City. My
3: family's been here a long time. My kids are sixth generation Kansas Cityans. My folks were juvenile probation officers. That's how they met. And then my dad was also a cop part-time. So I just came from this really public service oriented, not political, but public service oriented home where my Parents had taken in kids whose families were struggling. They were my younger brother and I's good friends, and they became what we called unofficial foster brothers. So when I got married to my wife, Diana, all of my groomsmen were my brothers. So I just grew up in this environment that was like, hey, we're very privileged. My great uncle, John, is a very successful Broadway composer. There have been other people in the family who've been successful. We've had a lot of opportunity, so we have some responsibility here. And that's pretty much it. That And like you look out for the people around you. You protect them. In high school, I was like everybody else. My age around here, I was going to play center field for the Kansas City Royals. That was my plan. I didn't have a plan B. And when I turned like 15, 16, and I realized that, oh, I think I'm going to stay 5'11 and not everybody else is, I started to think about what other things I might be good at. And at the time, I also happened to be in debate and I had a real natural ability for it and not really knowing what else that would mean and being a guy who liked competing that became, I think I'm going to run for office and be a lawyer and run for office. And I had no idea what the hell that meant. What it did is it took me to Washington, DC for college. Right. Uh, but all along the way, I still had this public service orientation. Right. To me, that was manifesting as politics, still not knowing what that was. But I had this idea in my head that- maybe one day i would serve in the military but i think the path i was on was there was about a 50 percent chance that i would have at some point found a way to be like a reserve air force jag officer or something like that maybe but then 9 11 happened and it was like no, no no i'm gonna do what my grandfather and my great uncle and my great grandfather did which is there's a war i'm that age i'm gonna go i'm gonna serve and then i'll go back to my life so I went into ROTC and became
0: a military intelligence officer in the army. Right. Kind of a classic story of the age in a lot of ways. You go to American, American University with an eye on public service and politics. You get up going to Georgetown Law School. You got deployed to Afghanistan. A lot of your fellow servicemen of your age must have been inspired by 9-11. That was a, a marked thing in our society as young men going, okay, this is my World War II. This is our great cause. I must go join. One guy said to me,
3: a good friend of mine in ROTC, he said to me, he goes, I was thinking I was going to join the Peace Corps. And then 9-11 happened and he shrugs and he goes, so I guess I joined the War Corps. <laughs> and, but that, that's, yeah, that's what it was. By the time I got my commission as an officer, I was 24, a couple years older than most of the people getting their commission because I had done it during law school, like during graduate school instead. But so basically, yeah, everybody I met between the ages of you know, 22 and 26, they probably weren't going to go into the military had 9-11 not happened. Your first commission
0: was what year? You got commissioned
3: in- I uh, I got commissioned as a second lieutenant in the military intelligence corps in the
0: United States Army in 2005, May 2005. 2005. I want to play a little sound here of one of your political heroes I asked you, and you're like, FDR, Truman, and this guy, a guy that, crazily enough, I was in graduate school with in- uh, I didn't know that. uh, Yeah, he lived about a block and a half from me in Somerville, Massachusetts, when he was a first-year law student. I was a first-year student at the Kennedy School of Government, and- um, Uh, He took some of my money in poker and occasionally let me bum a cigarette. Was he a good poker player? He was not a bad poker player, but he was constantly bumming cigarettes, constantly. The (laughs) phrase is the worst. Barack Obama in 2004 comes literally out of nowhere unless you happen to have had cigarettes bummed from you by him in law school and does this keynote address at the 2004 Democratic National Convention. And I'm going to play it just to remind people because, man... It is a million years ago when this was the way our politics sounded, when someone could give this speech. It was a great speech, but man, you try to give this speech right now in 2022, people laugh you out of the room, not consider you the second coming of John F. Kennedy. But here it is. On the other side, you can tell me the story of where you were, where you heard this, and what you thought. But here comes Barack Obama at the DNC.
4: The pundits, the pundits like to slice and dice our country into red states and blue states
0: red states for Republicans, blue states for Democrats, but I've got news for them too. We worship an awesome God in the blue states, and we don't like federal agents poking around in our libraries in the red states. We
4: coach Little League in the blue states, and yes, we've got some gay friends in the red states. There are patriots who oppose the war in Iraq. And they're
0: patriots who supported the war in Iraq. We are one people, all of us pledging allegiance to the Stars and Stripes, all of us defending the United States of America. I don't mean to be when I said laughed out of the room. It seems quaint, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not the pundits slicing and dicing anymore. There are red states and there are blue states. And man, the divide is very intense. But in 2004, he was a beacon of hope. Where were you when you heard it? And what did you think when you saw it?
3: I was sitting with my wife, Diana. We were sitting on the floor leaning up against the leather, like leather, probably couch <laughs> in our uh, in our apartment in Arlington, Virginia, because we were, I think, two L's in law school. Here's what I remember about it. I remember the two of us looking at each other. And I, I had a vague idea. I kind of knew who Obama was a little because I had read some stuff about him, but we really didn't know. And we were like, that guy. It wasn't that guy's going to be president. It was that guy should be president. The other thing that I remember striking me about it was I had this vague idea in my mind of something I had been looking for in life and in leadership. And I get into this in the book a lot. It's a lot of what pushed me into the military because one thing I try really hard to do in the book is, look, a lot of people are going to read it who never would have thought of going into the military and I need them to understand and relate to it. They're not going to read the books. My dad reads the books about war and stuff. So, you know, the first chapter is me going into the military. The second chapter is me in Afghanistan. The rest is what happened after But I needed to communicate how I ended up feeling the way I did about the military. And at that moment in my life, just before 9-11 up until seeing that speech, I was like a lot of people in the millennial generation, I think, which is, I felt like there was no great challenge for us. And I wanted to know, like, is anybody going to ask anything of us? I mean, we're still living through the longest period in American history with no mandatory service whatsoever. And after 9-11 what did President Bush say? He said, go shop. He didn't say buy a war bond and don't cash it in. He didn't say join the military. He just said, go shop. And I just thought, man, does everybody think so little of us that we would not step up for the country? And here I was, now it's 2004. I've been enlisted in the guard for about a year. Would have been longer, but I had to get knee surgery. And I've been in ROTC for a couple of years at that point, getting ready to get my commission. And I had done all that because I wanted to be called. And here comes this guy who, to me, the important part of that speech and of his message was this was a guy saying, No, we have a role here. We have a purpose to play, and I need you to be a part of it. Instead of, let me tell you what I'm going to do for you so that you don't have to worry about this anymore. And that moved me a
0: lot. You were like all in for Obama, right? So, yeah. So there's two good Obama stories in the book. The one Obama story that not everybody knows that I've heard about you and it's been written about in other places, but he asked to see you. I'm jumping ahead in the narrative a little bit here, but I just, because we're talking about Obama, he asked to see you. When is this after you were secretary of state in Missouri? Yeah, this
3: is January, I think of 2018. I had run for the Senate and lost by less than three points on the day that Hillary lost my state by 19, which had people going like, oh, this guy seems to know something. And at this point, he had also said nice things about me publicly, which was a big
0: surprise to me. Not just nice and, things. Uh, not just nice things. He said that he thought you should run for president, right? I mean, I indicated that you were the kind of person who could lead the party in the future. Right.
3: Which was awful nice of him. And I told him yeah, that. Uh, yeah. And and then at this point, now I have a national organization, Let America Vote, and I'm running around the country. And basically, soft running for present and seriously considering that. Yeah. And he, that's when he sort of summoned me to come
0: and see him and he call, in a nice way. And he calls you the natural.
3: Yeah, that's um, so. It was funny, you know, in writing this, I had a pretty long meeting with him. And I didn't want to write one of those books that people buy because they're like, oh my God, he's releasing a lot of private conversations. I, I, really admire and respect President Obama. I did before I knew him personally and after knowing him personally, I admire him even more. I didn't want to break confidences, but that validation of me was an enormous part of what continued to make me feel like I was on a path that could make sense. And it was all wrapped up for me and my idea of who I was, because I didn't have a very high estimation
0: secretly of myself as a human at that point. I like the notion of, I liked President Obama then, and I liked him even more after he compared me to Robert Redford. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. I somehow, like, I thought that, I thought that guy was pretty good. And then Elson did, the, he compared me to Robert Redford th- in that movie, and I thought, ooh, I really like Barack Obama. Now that is, that is really good judgment.
3: Well, actually, you know, what he did that really is even more than that. Because what he said was, you have what I have. Yeah, yeah. You're the natural. Yeah. It was him comparing me to him oh, that made me think. So wait, he's saying uh, you're a combination
0: you know, of Barack Obama and Robert, Robert Redford. No, wonder. I didn't even think like, of that yeah. of that until just now, well, the Robert Redford thing. Uh, so. Yeah. so then the other story is that when you eventually get to the point where you drop out of public life and acknowledge that you are suffering from PTSD, and again, we'll talk about this in more detail in a minute, but you go in and the first doctor you see doesn't know who you are. Um, well, just tell the anecdote of what sure. happened. is just so fucking funny. I like split my sides laughing when I read it.
3: Yeah. So I go to the VA. It's the day before I announce to the world that I'm stepping back from everything and telling people that I have PTSD and suicidal thoughts, etc. So I go to the VA because I got to get enrolled in the system to start getting help because I was announcing that that's what I was going to do was go get help at the VA. And I go and I answer a bunch of questions. And the next thing I know. I'm in the emergency room at the VA here in Kansas City in the suicide hold. And they've taken all my belongings away from me and my clothes, everything. And all along the way, as they're checking me into this, I can tell that people are recognizing me. They're doing double takes and stuff, which at that time, I mean, my face had been everywhere on TV for the last couple of years. There was no not recognizing me. Just just
0: to say, you had been elected Secretary of State. You'd been a state representative. You'd won in 2008. In 2012, you won as a Secretary of State. You were the first millennial ever elected statewide in the country, and- You were very active, very media friendly. You were out. You were good on television. You were inescapable in that period of time that you had been Secretary of State for four years. You'd run against Roy Blunt. Like People know who you were in Missouri. It's the show me state. You showed them. Yeah. And this happened in the middle of a mayoral campaign where we're
3: way ahead in everything. I mean, the joke I make in the book is that I should have been enjoying it because everybody's goal in a local election is to get name recognition. And I had 100% face recognition, right? right? So, So- it's kind of mortifying when you're checking into the psych ward and everybody's like, <laughs> that's Jason Cander," And so I'm sitting on this like metal bed thing and I'm like, got my arms around my knees, which are pulled up to my chest. And you know, it's a low point, John, and uh, in my life. And this young psych resident comes in they told me he was the guy on duty. And I could tell within the first minute or so that he didn't have any idea who I was. And at first it's like a huge relief. Right. Yeah. And and so I, I spent 30 minutes telling this guy stuff that I had never told anybody other than my wife, which is that I had gone a decade with violent night terrors, hadn't had a good night's sleep, and I was depressed, and I was pretty paranoid. I was searching my house at night for bad guys, convinced people were coming to hurt my family and couldn't feel joy and all that kind of great stuff. <laughs> and so we have this conversation for about a half hour, and then we're kind of wrapping it up because he, I think, determined that I wasn't going to kill myself that day. And so he's going to let me go. And then he asked, he says, um, so do you have like a particularly stressful job or something? And I was like, well, I'm in politics. And he's like, what does that mean? I just sort of said, well, I was going to run for president. And then I decided to run for mayor, but I'm calling that off tomorrow because I want to come here and get help. And he just is like, I'm sorry, what? President of what? <laughs> and, I, and I was like, of of the United States. And he, he's like, he says, well, who told you that you could run for president? And now I've gone from like mortified that people are recognizing me to just irritated that this guy doesn't believe me. And I say, well, I don't know what to tell you, man. I I spent an hour and a half, just me and Obama. And he seemed to think it was a pretty good idea. And he kind of sits back for a second and like taps his notebook with his pen. And he says, so how often would you say you hear
0: voices? (laughs) and uh, that was my first day at the VA Uh, that's a punchline that lands it's great um yeah so here's my question you were I said rising star contemplate right for president all that stuff happened in parallel to all of that there's this other thing going on right we talked about how you've been deployed to Afghanistan a second deployment had come along they wanted to send you to Kuwait you were like I don't want to go to Kuwait I want to go to Kandahar I have questions about that, but there's this military engagement. You had your deployment and you're winning these races you're a rising star, et cetera, et cetera. But the whole time you're kind of fucked up and mm-hmm. you know, you're kind of fucked up. You're not sleeping. You have compulsive behavior. You're seeing these symptoms over years where you are not happy. You are not healthy. Before we get to the moment where it snaps and you decide that you want to seek help and quit the mayor's race, as we just talked about, how are you thinking about these symptoms that are playing out? And do you see any connection between something that happened in your deployment in Afghanistan? Is any of that clear to you? Or are you just kind of like, man, I'm kind of grumpy. I wonder what the fuck's wrong. Like, what are you thinking about those symptoms in those years that you had them and were rising
3: yeah. and succeeding? It's it's a great and important question. Buckle in for at least like a two-minute answer because go i got to take you through the evolution. Here. Please. That's what I wanted. So,
0: so when I first come home- From, from Africa, Afghanistan.
3: Yeah, okay. sorry. Yeah. yeah. I, and you were I just come home from...
0: Af- sorry, wait. Just let me ask you this one. You were there for four months. Your deployment was four months, right? That's right. Did anything happen to you in Afghanistan that struck you in the moment as massively traumatic? It doesn't seem like there is in the book.
3: No, nothing. And that was right. the thing. And so, yeah, that's that's a good point. That's a good place to start. Let's talk about what the deployment was yeah. for me, yeah. right? So. I get deployed as an army intelligence officer i get there and the job i end up in which i was thrilled to have the opportunity to do because i was young and bulletproof was what my commander over there would eventually refer to later as thug which is to say thug intelligence which is a made-up term that means my job as he put it was to develop relationships with thugs so that they would give us information on other thugs So what that meant was is I would go out, usually just me and my translator, sometimes me and a few others, and I would take meetings with people who their allegiances couldn't really be known. They were questionable. Sometimes we knew their allegiances were to not us, but they were pretending they were to us. And that is to say, I went to a lot of meetings in places where nobody really knew where I was, so they couldn't come bail me out. And if things went bad, I was going to get my head cut off on YouTube and sometimes I was in uniform. Sometimes I was in street clothes, but my idea of what combat was when I went over was what I had seen in the movies. Combat was bullets whizzing by your ear, you killing people, getting blown up. Some of what my friends, some of them had experienced it. And I thought that's combat. And anything short of that is not combat. Now I had been out on the road a lot as much as you can be over four months so I had been exposed to the possibility of all that, but I had never once fired my weapon in Afghanistan, never did. And I was in several situations where I thought I was about to have to. And I knew that if I did, I was probably not going to make it out of that room. Right. And I was in situations where I thought I was about to be kidnapped potentially and some other things that I get into in the book. But I, I enjoyed my deployment. I felt fully utilized. I felt like what I was doing was important. I knew that there were moments where I was like, God, this is out of a spy movie. I can't believe I get to have this experience. And remember, this is 06, 07. There wasn't a lot of, should we even be in Afghanistan? I mean, I felt like I was the tip of the spear and it was important. And it was all the things that I had wanted growing up in terms of feeling like I mattered and made a difference, right? right? And so when it ended, I was... I was like disappointed and I felt terrible that I was only there four months. There were people who were there when I got there and there when I left and that just didn't feel right. So I come home and initially some of the first stuff is like, I have a muscle spasm that started in my eye, in my left eyelid. So, like the moment the plane touched down in Qatar, leaving Afghanistan. And that lasted six months. And then I start to get some nightmares about being kidnapped. Even though I had never been kidnapped, it's what I was on guard for all the time. So I start to have nightmares that take place in Afghanistan, except I actually get kidnapped. And then the other thing was I had a lot of trouble being out in a car. If the car slowed down at a stoplight, I would get really anxious, right? Because we didn't do that over there. The thing is, though, other than the nightmares, the other two, after about six months, they went away. And so I had the story to tell myself. Oh, okay, yeah, I was just in a combat zone. Of course, I'm going to feel some things, but they're going away. And then after a few years, the nightmares, now they actually got way worse But what they also did is they evolved and they stopped taking place in Afghanistan and they stopped taking place in a context where I was in uniform. But instead, it was people coming to my house to kidnap me and my family. And I thought, or at least I wanted to think, and so I made myself think, see, I'm getting better. And they're not connected to Afghanistan because they don't even take place there anymore. Now, I learned later in therapy that, no, that's actually really bad. When your nightmares evolve to your modern environs, it feeds this other symptom that I had had all along, hypervigilance, which was believing I'm in constant danger and my family is. And if every night
0: in your subconscious that's reinforced, it gets worse. I didn't know that then. Right. That's what's going on. I want to come back to this one thing about the deployment. As I read it, I thought, I didn't understand it at all. You write about it. You explain it, I'm, you know, but I still want to hear you talk about it. Well, I didn't – at that point in the book, I don't want you to understand
3: well, it. right, I want you to be where I was. Right.
0: So, so it's 2011, and you get the second deployment. They want to send you to Kuwait, and you're like, no, no, no. I want to go to Kandahar. Now, in 2011, it's fair to say Kandahar was like maybe the most dangerous place on planet Earth. Um, yeah. I understand now your interpretation of what these symptoms are and what your interpretation of your first deployment had been. It still strikes me as curious or – like more or, or something darker than curious. You can, you can say crazy, John. Well, it's okay. it's just, I mean, uh, talk me through why it's like, I got to go to Kandahar. In my current condition, I haven't slept really in like years, but what I really got to do is I got to go back. I got to do a second deployment. Please send me to the most dangerous place I could possibly go with my hypervigilance, my lack of sleep, et cetera, et cetera, my nightmares, you know?
3: Yeah. Well, so at that point, what I had settled on, what I thought the problem was for me in terms of how I felt about myself was, I hadn't done enough. And that was the refrain for years for me. I just, I, ha- I haven't done enough. You know, it drove me politically. It drove me in my career. It drove me in so many different ways. I had a guy, I talk about TJ in the book. I had a guy who I went through training with at Fort Lewis, who was just one of the best officers I ever met. He was shot by a sniper in Iraq no long after we had trained together. And, you know, he, he's alive now, but he's not the guy that I, that I knew and that I met. And, and I had you know, friends like that. I had a guy that I had served with who came home and took his own life and we did similar jobs. And so I felt an enormous, it's hard to explain. I just was like, I haven't done anything. I haven't done anything to warrant any of the things that I have in my life. And I just thought, if I can go over there and I can really do something and get hurt maybe, then maybe that'll justify everything. And the other thing is, when I was volunteering to go, I didn't have any other way to explain why I wanted to other than to say to people, and it sounded so corny, but it's how I felt. I would say back in the first appointment, I'd say, well, if I can do my job well, maybe some other people get home safely. And I never got to feel that that happened, but now I know nobody does, but I didn't know that then.
0: So basically bottom line here is, is in truth. You're a ticking time bomb psychologically. and, and Oh, for sure I was, yeah, yeah. And we'll take a quick break and we'll come back for the last part of this and talk about what then happened. We've alluded to it already, but it's basically been your life for the last four years and it brings you up to the book and what the book is all about. So we'll be back in a second with Jason Kander here on Hell in High Water. And we're back with Jason Kinder on Colin High Water, talking about his – don't usually use the word extraordinary that much, but it's an extraordinary memoir, Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD. And I say extraordinary probably because a lot of us, those of us in this business who – I got to know you as a rising star and we started to have conversations and I was like, that dude – Gonna run for president. He's Missouri, you know. This guy is like red state Democrat, military background, really smart, really appealing. It was one statewide there, young, all that stuff. Great family, whole fucking deal. And I understood at thirty, I believe you we were like thirty seven in twenty eighteen, where you were kind of thinking about running for president. I would have probably said, "Hey man, you know, thirty seven is maybe a little fast. Like slow your roll a little bit there, bro." I, and then you decided to do that, and we're like, "Okay, I'm gonna go run for mayor of Kansas City." And then all of a sudden, you were out. And it was like, what the fuck is going on? And You had decided to seek help, and you started to tell that story before. I want to play a movie clip because you mention it in the book. You say at this point in 2018 that this famous movie clip from the movie The Shawshank Redemption was running through your head a lot in this era. And I'm not sure if you mean right before you decided to seek help or right after, but either way, it's around that time. You got Morgan Freeman as Red in that movie and Tim Robbins as Andy in a key pivotal moment in the incredible 1994 movie The Shawshank Redemption. I don't think you ought to be doing this to yourself, Andy. This is just shitty pipe dreams. I mean, Mexico is way the hell down there, and you're in here, and that's the way it is. Yeah, right. That's the way it is.
5: It's down there, and I'm in here. I guess it comes down to a simple choice, really. Get busy living, or get busy
0: dying. Just a a spoiler alert for anybody else not seen that movie. He decides to get busy living and he breaks out of the prison and ends up in Mexico, which is like, yeah, feel good story for our ages. Why was that in your head? What was this precise context in which you found yourself thinking about that a lot as relates to the question of your PTSD? So it
3: started before I got help when I was in the mayoral race and just at the very end of when I was still going to run for president. To me at that point, it meant like, I got to do this race. I got to keep going. That was the only thing i knew what living was at that point was avoiding myself and throwing myself into this stuff because i was starting to feel like if i didn't do that i was going to die at my own hand and then after i made the choice to get help and to step out of public life it took on a different meaning for me because then it was oh i'm getting busy living by actually facing my trauma head on and choosing not to die and breaking out of the prison that was ptsd
0: Right. And so, you know, of course, the, the thing and you write about this, I believe actually one of the chapter titles in the book. or
3: Jason Kander, he
0: died? Yes. This, towards the end of the book, the third to last chapter in the book, Jason Kander, question mark, he died. While you're saying the interpretation of what you were doing by seeking help was to not die, for the outside world, for the public, it was like, Jason Kander has committed career suicide, a brilliant political career, one of the highest upside young Democrats in the country, has just taken himself out of public life, maybe forever, and acknowledge that he's been grappling with suicidal ideation and PTSD, what did it feel like to have people saying those things on one hand? And how did it feel to be admitting that you needed help in the private setting?
3: Well, first of all, to to admit that I needed help, it wasn't like it didn't fix everything. But boy, it did make me immediately feel like I was carrying a lot less, right? Because I didn't have to I didn't have to wear the Jason Kander suit anymore. You know, I I don't feel I was ever false with people because I didn't admit to myself what was going on with me, right? Look, I I wasn't exactly out there having people know that this really easygoing guy was patrolling his house in the middle of the night with a pistol because he was convinced people were trying to take his kid. Um, I wasn't telling people that, but all of a sudden I at least didn't feel like I had to pretend. But the other side to that was, as I was going through therapy, and I was doing it in a pretty solitary way, I had wiped my calendar of everything, and I would go to weekly therapy appointments and then do my homework from therapy in between and try and help out around the house. But I had gone from scheduled every minute of every day to that. I was aware of what was being projected onto me by the rest of the world, which is the day that I made the announcement, it was everybody was so encouraging. And the most famous people in politics you can think of were calling or whatever or saying stuff. And that was I found out that a a few days later and that was encouraging, but it also meant that I felt like everybody saw me as the smoking crater where Jason Kander fell back to earth. So like on days when maybe I was having a pretty decent day, I'm just going about my day, going to the grocery store, maybe getting to exercise, stuff like that, spending time with my kid and maybe being successful at, at being present in the moment. Then you're like at the grocery store and somebody leans in and whispers to you, like the world is a better place because you're in it. Because they feel like a personal obligation to convince you not to kill yourself. It can take you out of your good mindset and remind you that when people see you, they don't see you, they see a ghost. And I had to navigate that. Like, how do I exist now? And what I ultimately had to learn to do was to... Was to not really care how other people saw me, and
0: to just learn how I saw me. You talked about therapy. You have a therapist. You talk about it at length in the book. Two questions that come out of that in this process that you've undertaken over the last four years of healing and fixing yourself, or try to fix yourself, getting your arms around yourself at least. One is, what did you come to understand specifically about your PTSD? And then there's a little list of five things. Things I learned from therapy that could be from my therapy for PTSD that is actually maybe useful for everybody. I want you to tick those off and talk about them because they are, I think, useful lessons.
3: Yeah. So going back to what we talked about a minute ago, I came back from my deployment thinking nothing had happened to me. And what I learned was that yeah, it's probably right that there are people who sustained more acute trauma than me. That mine was more about the trauma that comes with, on a daily basis, preparing yourself to take a, another life and also being aware that you could be violently killed. Like that, if you sustain that over a long period of time, it can be traumatic. But I also learned that had I treated that pretty soon after I came home, probably would not have become as, for lack of a better term, malignant as it did. Yeah. I did a lot of damage to myself by getting an injury. And then continuing to stay in the game for so long instead of addressing the injury and then getting back in the game. And so I learned that about myself. And I also learned some things that I think are applicable for everybody. One is that either you deal with your trauma or your trauma deals with you. I tried really hard to outrun it and I did it for about a decade. And nobody was outrunning trauma faster than I was. And ultimately, what made a difference in my life is when I turned around and decided to take it head on. Right. That's all you can really do. You can't outrun it. Another thing was that there are always going to be more traumas. You know, There's going to be things that you have to deal with. You don't deal with it and then it's over. It's an injury, not unlike the knee injury where I had to get surgery before I entered the army. I can still run. I'm pretty pretty good runner, yeah. but I got to ice it. Yeah. you know. And so it doesn't have to disrupt your life. But here's the biggest thing, and this is More than anything this is why i wrote the book is that trauma is an injury if you go to treatment and you commit yourself to the treatment and you do the homework you can get better and it doesn't have to disrupt your life anymore and i wanted to tell that story because if this book had existed 14 years ago I think I would have gone to get help and then I would have gone on with my life and it would never have gotten so bad. And people don't know. I I didn't even know till I was in therapy that you're supposed to get better. All we see when it comes to PTSD is PTSD porn. It's voyeurism. It's people hurting themselves or hurting other people. We don't see what is super common, which is people who go to treatment and then they go on with their lives and they're better for it.
0: Yeah, on this list, you have a couple of things like it's not a contest. Don't compare your treatment to kind of other people. Oh yeah, but the one that I that it resonates most with me that I just will say because I don't think <laughs> it's one of these things you say it's really obvious on some level, but a lot of people don't do it, which is treat yourself as you would treat a good friend. And you know, so many of us don't do that. We regret people who are great to your friends. You're like, I'll do anything for my friend. I'll go, you know, I'd walk across broken glass and through a burning building for my friend. But You end up treating yourself like shit and not giving yourself anything like that kind of attention and respect and love. It's a problem.
3: One of the things I learned in
0: therapy that I, I really value is
3: self-compassion. Yeah. And I didn't have it for a really long time. Yeah. And now I do.
0: And it's it's valuable. Yes, I sit here looking at you right now. You seem happy and at peace. Is mm-hmm. that right?
3: Yeah. Look, I mean- <clears throat> My life's not perfect. Like I, I get stressed about things. I, I get, I you know. I didn't
0: say perfect. You yeah. Know, I I, no. I mean, I like, didn't use that word.
3: Oh, I heard you say
0: yeah. I was perfect. I, I, uh, no, I think your life is perfect, Jason. It's perfect. Yeah. it's perfect.
3: No, like I have, I have shitty days, right? Yeah. But the difference is, I used to constantly think and plan the future because the present was pretty intolerable for me. And now, I'm enjoying the present a great deal. I'm playing baseball at 41 I'm playing on an adult baseball team I'm coaching my son's little league I'm spending time with my wife and my son and my daughter I'm doing the stuff that I used to look at people who did these things and led the kind of life that I'm living now and I envied them but I didn't understand them right. but I wanted to want what they had yeah. but I didn't want it you know and now I have it but I have the luxury of I still have a platform and I get to engage in politics on my own terms through my podcast, through social media, sometimes through speaking out publicly on things. And I do it because I want to, not because I think I should. And I guess America and I are square is how I concluded in the book. And that's a good feeling.
0: Well, look, you're still a 41-year-old man and there are questions, you know? So a good way to get to them and not, it's only, only going to be one, really, not that many questions. It's, a very it's okay. I kind of know what it is. Well, of course you do. Of course, it's the most obvious <laughs> question in the world. But you write about it at the end of the book in a particular way, not about politics, but about a certain kind of conception of yourself. I don't like Missouri sports teams, okay? The Cardinals, I, I just <laughs> fucking hate them. The Royals, I'm a little bit okay with, but... Because it's you and because I love you and I, I want to support okay, you. I'm a
3: Royals fan. I just I'm, had to use a Cardinals example. I'm going to
0: play this clip for anybody who knows anything about, about baseball. You'll know that there's a player by the name of Rick Ankeel who was a Cardinals pitcher. He was a great pitcher. And then he started dealing with what they call in both golf and baseball, the yips. So here's a little clip from a Fox Sports doc with Rick Ankeel. And let's play that. We'll tell the rest of the Rick Ankeel story and then ask how it applies in some specific ways to Jason Kander.
5: You know, it's just that the confidence gets eroded once it happens. You know, it just gets in there, and I think when you say
0: embarrassing, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, uh, I'm sure this happened to you. You never had to think about it before. Never. I could, get up and I could throw the ball, I could hit a gnat anywhere I wanted, and now all of a sudden, something I've done my entire life is gone, and there's no explanation, and you start looking around and seeing guys that have gone through this, and they never make it back. It's not the same thing as a physical injury, but uh, quite frankly, it might be the end of your career. So I think the, the scary thing is that, You don't know what's happening. So there's a guy who sounds a lot like Jason Kander. That's a guy like who had the yips is all in your head, but you lose and you don't really know what's going on. There's confusion about it, don't know how to interpret it. And in Ricky and Keel's case, man, you know, that guy was a star and then he wasn't anymore. And then he makes a comeback and ends up playing center field. So you tell this story and you say it in an application to you in general, like, oh, so I'm not quite an all-star anymore, but I can still be on the team. I just want to know whether that means, okay, so Jason Cantor's never going to run for president, but he might run for governor. He might run for something else. That, you know, Rick Hank Hill still played the game at a high level. Yeah, to me, what it means is in the analogy
3: for me to go from being a pitcher to an outfielder, I'm still part of the game. You know, I still talk with. The people who are in leadership doing things, I still talk to them regularly. I still have a platform. When I have something I really want to say, like I did about Afghanistan withdrawal a few months ago, I can go on TV and I can be wall-to-wall over your TV and I can say it. And then I can go back to coaching Little League and playing, ironically, center field for the Kansas City Hustlers. Like I can do that. And that's a luxury of mine. And it allows me to still enjoy my life and my family. And it means to me that at some point, I may choose to come back in and be in politics in the way that people see me in the cultural zeitgeist, right? Which it means to me, what does that mean? It means I would maybe run for like president or mayor. That's what it means. But I don't have any specific plans to do that. And I don't know if I ever will, but if I do, it'll be because it's what I want to do. And I can do it in a way that I don't have to lose the peace I have and the
0: life that I have. I promise you, I was not meaning to ask in some gotcha way. I I'm like I'm, we're having a very enlightened no, yeah. a very enlightened conversation here. I mean, usually, when people say they have no plans to do something, what they mean is it's a weasel word. For, yeah, like, it's a I really to say. want to run for president, but as of right now, I have no concrete plans, and I don't have an office, and I, you know, I haven't hired staff.
3: Let you're, me go further. You're, as of now,
0: I don't want to. Right. I just might want to again. Right, right. You're, but you're basically saying in a straightforward way. Yeah, I've done important work on my psyche, and. I'm not ruling anything out. I might, mm-hmm. I might not. Yeah. You know what Run it is, for office is that, um, again of some kind is what I mean.
3: Right. I don't think I have to, to complete my life. I don't feel that it has to be me. One day I may say, you know what? That's what I want to do. And if I do, it'll be an adventure that my wife and I go on. Maybe when the kids are grown and we'll do it together and it'll be completely different than before. But right now I'm like anybody else who, when somebody dangles a job out there in front of him, no matter what the job is. I'm the president of National Expansion at Veterans Community Project. It's an organization I think is making a huge difference. I think I'm making a huge difference through it. All my royalties from this book go to that cause. I love what I'm doing. It's the best civilian job I've ever had. And I don't want to trade it in for another job. You know what? Cabinet secretaries and presidents of the United States they don't get to coach their kids' little league team and they don't get to play baseball three nights a week and they don't get to work out at 10 a.m. if they want to on a particular day. And I like doing those things and I've figured out that I've actually earned
0: the ability to do it and it's okay. So since baseball is a light motif here, I asked Jason, I said, Hey, tell me your three political heroes, three non-political heroes. And he gave me, as I said before, Truman, FDR, and Obama. We've discussed Obama. I asked for the three non-political heroes. I got to hear the ones that everybody gives, you know, his dad, his wife, Diana. Now, your wife, Diana. Uh, with this whole other podcast to do here, she's very prominent and present in the book. There's passages that are written by her or in her voice. She's very like a big part yeah, of this book, by her, yeah. and a huge part of your life, your recovery, grappling with all these challenges you've grappled with, etc. I'm doffing my cap to her. It's, it's another nice part of the book. However, <laughs> the third non-political hero of the book, Kansas City Royal George Brett, now. For those of you who don't know, George Brett, Hall of Fame third baseman for the Kansas City Royals, 1970s, 1980s. In 1983, the most famous thing that ever happened to George Brett happened. I want to play the sound, and then I'm going to ask ask how it is possible that Jason Kander could call this man a hero. This is George Brett (laughs) and the pine tar bat incident. Now, that is the plate umpire, Tim McClellan, with the bat in his hand. Now they're going to measure it across home plate. Well, I, I've never, I've never seen this. I never have either. I don't know what, I don't know what they're measuring. They might be going to call George Brett out. Well, they he is, he's out. Yes, sir. Brett is out, look at, look at this. Brett is out. and Damon mad. He is out and having to be forcibly restrained from hitting. White umpire, Tim McClellan. And the Yankees have won the ball game 4-3. to three. Brett is called out for using an illegal bat or with the illegal substance on the bat. Okay, so 1983, Yankee Stadium, Billy Martin managing for the Yankees. That a scene took place. Now, what you can't see there, for anybody who's unfamiliar, is George Brett is a picture of psychotic rage as he races out <laughs> of the dugout and tries to literally kill The home plate umpire, Tim McClellan, who has ruled him out because they say he's put too much pine tar on his bat, violating various Major League Baseball rules. Dude, you are a picture as I look at you right now of zen, integrated, wholesome, happy, pacific mental health. George Brett, psychopath, a homicidal psychopath in the most famous moment. I just Googled it. If you type into the Google George Brett pine tar, 1.63 million hits. Okay. It's the thing George Brett will be known for for the rest of his life, wanting to kill someone over pine tar. I want you to explain yourself. This will be the last word of the podcast because right now this thing as a hero just is not reading right for a man of your current station and stature.
3: Well, no, <laughs> that's so funny. All right, so let's tell the rest of the story, which is, it was a very obscure rule that said your pine tar could only go a certain amount of the way up the bat. Do, do, only, that, do only
0: the unobscure rules count, Jason? Or is well, it
3: is it, in the rule book, I believe? They, not anymore, because after that, they reviewed it. They reinstated the home run, had to play the rest of the game and got rid of the rule. Because they were like, this
0: rule makes no sense. Tim McClaw was afraid that George Brett was going to to his house and, and kill him and his children. That's what, that's hey, real. I thought I had the last word, John.
3: Um, now, uh, <laughs> okay, good last, last word. Um, so I will tell you, the way that George Brett became my hero is that- when I was a kid, my dad was my baseball coach. And baseball is like as much a religion in our family as Judaism. And my dad would take me to Royals games and he would have me watch George Brett on every play and how hard George Brett played. And then when George Brett would come up and he would hit like a two hopper or a one hopper back to the pitcher and everybody knew he was out. He knew he was out. My dad would say, but watch Brett. And Brett would sprint as hard as he could to first base. And I grew up understanding that what my dad was teaching me through George Brett and on the baseball field was that you get out of life what you put into it. And George Brett put, and actually the the sound you played is a good example of it, he put everything he had into baseball. And now there's a lot of ways in which George Brett, like his politics and mine are not at all the same. No, but, no, but no, the, no. not at all, right? But the way that he played baseball is the way that I have often approached life in a good way, which is You get out of it what you put into it. And so my son, I'm his baseball coach, he wears number five and he understands that I don't care how many hits he gets in the game. I care. Do you run as hard as you can off the field, on the field? Do you run as hard as you can to first base? And do you lay out for the ball? And that's still how I play at the age of 41, which gets me hurt a lot. But it's also, if you had taken away the PTSD and everything, it was still at the heart of everything I did in politics. And it's the heart of everything I do now, which is you get out of life what you put into it. And I learned
0: that from what my dad taught me about how to watch George Brett play baseball. Although I trashed him, and although he was a <laughs> homicidal maniac that day, it is also the case. Well, and he, I also believe he was wasn't he a pretty prominent like chewing tobacco dude? I think that might have been true. Yeah,
3: so, but well, he also is the only guy to ever have a batting title in three separate decades. Yes,
0: he's all, he's also only one of five players in major league history to have three thousand hits, three hundred home runs and a career, three hundred batting average. Others being Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, Miguel Cabrera, and Stan Musial. That's a pretty rarefied air there. So I'm I'm granting the notion the man played hard. He had an incredible career. It's just like that one moment, man. That's not a thing you want to live on the internet, that picture. Because it looks like- like, To to my
3: point, let's leave it on one George Brett statistic. It looks like Charles Charles
0: Manson in in Iran. Yeah, he was- He's like, Helter Skelter, Helter Skelter.
3: He lost it. He lost it. He also hated the Yankees. That helped. Made him feel more crazy that day. The George Brett statistic that goes to my point the most is that if you look over the last 50 years, he is tied with Mickey Mantle for 10th all-time in inside-the-park home Ah. runs. Mickey Mantle was a center fielder. George Brett was a third baseman with average speed at best. He's tied for 10th all time in Inside the Park Home Runs because every single time George Brett hit the ball, no matter how hard he hit it or where he hit it, that dude came out of the box sprinting as hard as he could. And that's how my dad taught me to approach life.
0: Yeah, you know that's how Pete Rose played the game too, and he's a cheater also. Anyway, Jason Kander, <laughs> Jason Kander I, I, it's awesome to see you. Congratulations on the book. The book's really great. Jason's really great. Go buy it now. Don't be afraid of the PTSD thing, the trauma, the post-traumatic stress disorder. It's not... A traumatic book to read. It's not a stressful book to read, and you don't have a disorder if you buy it. So, Invisible Storm, <laughs> a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSB by Jason Kander. I will say, on behalf of a, a nation that needs people on team democracy and ones who know how to communicate and ones who are just good people, men, women, I hope you decide to run for something in the future. I always thought you were promising that because of the, you're like Barack Obama or like Robert Redford. I just thought he's a good dude who knows how to talk to normal people. And I think we got to have more of those if so our public life's going to recover. Well, John, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. I appreciate your friendship and I appreciate the chance to come and talk about the book. Thank you. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Jason Kander for being with us and remember to pick up Jason's new book, Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell in High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell in High Water. Matthew Kaplowitz is our video editor. Megan Burney is our producer and engineer. Fonda Mwangi is our researcher and assistant producer. And Marshall Eisen, the one and only CIA operative and Hell in High Water's executive producer.